Hey everybody and welcome to What the Dog Saw, a podcast devoted entirely to the FX original series American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Today we're going to be covering two episodes. We're going to be covering episode 8, A Jury in Jail, and episode 9, Manna from Heaven. I'm Neil McNeil and with me is my co-host, Lorena Mora. And let's just dive right into it. So we had some audio issues with our last episode, so we're going to power through A Jury in Jail right now. Lorena, what did you think of this episode? Um, I feel like you and I, um, I mean, you and I have already talked this episode out, but in hindsight, I'm kind of glad that, like, we had the episode, it was a fine standalone ep, didn't really give me a whole lot of insight into the trial, the meat of the trial, Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually really reflecting on this hardcore today, um, just knowing what we know about the case and what they had to know for the case it's two different cases to me. You mean the jury and what's going on in the courtroom? I mean, obviously, like, because we are in the future, mm-hmm. um, we know so much more. But I also, I also just think about, like, when you're on a jury, what you know is, is very curated for you. So, like, you're only allowed to know what goes on in the courtroom. And that's a huge point of of contention here is these people are sequestered they're not even allowed to talk to each other about the case so all they know is the hard cold facts that they're learning in the courtroom and that's what they have to base their decision on no bias we get a lot of that uh we get a lot of that feeling in episode nine which is the next episode we're going to be covering um in this two-parter here um but focusing on episode eight specifically um we start off with Um, We're 124 days into the trial, and the jury is freaking restless. They are going crazy. Um, We see inklings of that throughout the episode. Jurors just not having it. Um, And then we get a quick flashback to when they were all first brought into this hotel to be um, sectioned off uh, as a part of this jury. These people think it's only going to last a few weeks, maybe a month. They're seeing this as a staycation, not really like a like a like a hard commitment that they're gonna have to be this case lasted what what do we say 10 months 10 months i think a lot of people going into this thought it was just gonna be a cakewalk like oh famous guy kills his wife like we kind of know what happened let's just judge him fairly Mm -hmm. i don't think anybody expected to be away from their families their lives their their realities for almost a year they got books taken away they got television taken away they could only I think one of my favorite references of this entire series happens in this episode, though, is when they're um, all convening for TV time, and the guards tell them, okay, Blockbuster sent over um, all of these tapes for us to watch, and they had to take a vote as to what to watch, <laughs> and the two choices, it was Seinfeld, and what was the other show? Martin. Martin. And there was a clear racial divide, and I too like this reference where... You know, there were some people pulling for Martin, and there was, like, the old white guy in the corner saying he wanted to watch Seinfeld. <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, it's the 90s. They're, they're two very different shows for two very different audiences who are now coming together and clashing in kind of, like, the ultimate battle of the 90s. It's, and what is it? Martin ends up winning, and the white people are not happy. I wouldn't be happy either. You know me. I'm a Seinfeld person. You're a Seinfeld person? I would have much rather have watched Martin. Seinfeld is boring to me. It's just boring white people problems. I hate it. (laughs) But we do see that the jury is really getting at each other's throats um, as the court case progresses. Um, They don't really see a sense of camaraderie together. I mean, 
we see them getting to know each other a little bit. We see them getting to um, bond over the fact that they are stuck here. We also see them bonding with the guards, which I find very interesting. We don't really get a sense of all these characters. We haven't seen them play out through the previous seven episodes. So everything we're getting about these people is all coming from this one episode. So I kind of like there was that moment where I'm like, oh, I kind of feel for these people, but I don't really know them or don't really care for them. Uh, what we do see, though, is we see the guards being switched out midway through the trial. Uh, what was the reasoning for this again? Um, I believe I was going to bring up the fact that maybe you don't care about them because we don't even learn their names. Yeah, no, we don't learn most of these people's names. But the only person whose name we do learn is Tracy, who has multiple nervous breakdowns over the course of the episode. And I believe <laughs> that, the, that these guards were switched out specifically because Tracy said that the white people were getting an hour to go shopping at Target while the black people were getting a half hour at Ross. And, Huge and racial divide. Need to switch out some people. When they asked her, well, why are, why are they doing this? Why are the guards doing this? And she says, oh, because the guards think that black people like Ross and the white people like Target. And when asked if this was true, her response is just, of course it's true. But she is upset that they are not getting as much time or the same juror benefits that the white jurors are getting from her perspective. Which, I mean, we never really see this play out, but I fully believe that this was something that was going on behind closed doors. At the same time, we have a lot of jurors that are liars. That have yeah. kind of lied their way into this pool. I mean, we kind of start to see them drop like flies, specifically to the tune of another one bites the dust. And Yeah, that whole that whole montage sequence where jurors are just being pulled left and right. I mean the I first juror the first juror that we see pulled, um, what number are they? It was juror number six twenty was pulled for lying on the questionnaire about having dealt with domestic violence before. And I could see where this juror lied on paper. I don't, I don't necessarily think that he lied because he wanted to be on this case. I think he lied because it wasn't, in his mind, that big of a deal. He just... The story of it is he got in a fight with his girlfriend, locked her in the car and drove her around the block a little bit, and then she called the cops on him for kidnapping. Nothing ended up happening. We don't hear that any charges ended up getting pressed. Um, but this is considered an instance of domestic abuse. And they dig this up, uh, somebody digs this up, and they get the juror dismissed. And that's the first juror that we see dismissed on this case. And it just leads to an entire domino effect of both the Dream Team and Marsh's team trying to eliminate jurors to stack the jury to be what they want to get their ideal verdict. I mean, a little insight. This uh, You and I have talked about how this episode was kind of a literal game of chess where mm -hmm. each team was trying to one-up each other. Juror number 620 was actually the fourth juror dismissed from this case. Right. We only got a sense that they were the first one because the episode hadn't covered the previous other jurors. Do we, do we know the story behind those? Um, I do not know of the first four. To be honest, I know we'll I, I, I got this from Twitter. Um, one of Entertainment Weekly's editors was was doing like a live fact checking. Mm -hmm. um, and she mentioned how this was the fourth juror dismissed. And this guy ended up writing a book about his entire experience. Oh, another person who decided to write a book. And he finished it before the case was even over. So just Ooh, quick cash right there. Shit. That is literal cash. cash for trash. And I mean, if the jurors got a hold of this book. 
that maybe could have swayed their decision one way or the other if they found out what was happening because when each of these jurors was getting dismissed, the guards weren't allowed to divulge why they got dismissed or what happened. They just said, uh, this is, you know, the, you know, the procedure. If someone gets dismissed, I can't talk about it. They just come in and collect their things and then escort them out without anybody being able to contact them. Anyway, I think as we lose jurors, we start to lose more controversial ones. Um, mm-hmm. 462 was... Um, I called her the Pine Saw Lady, just to add in another <laughs> 90s reference. She reminded me a lot of the Pine Saw Lady. Okay. Um, she lied about her husband raping her. Right, right. Well, according to F. Lee Bailey, it wasn't considered rape back in the 80s. This is the best scene for me in that episode was F. Lee Bailey being all pompous and old and white and, and Marcia saying, <laughs> you just said that out loud <laughs> i love it when marcia comes for f lee bailey that is the best ever is when she calls him out consistently for being such a shitty human being and we also see um a woman who is known as the demon by the dream team b- finally being brought onto the jury because apparently she has had instances where she's flipped entire juries before when she was called this This is all true. This happened. They were afraid of this woman because she had a history of changing the verdict of whatever jury that she was on. So this, yeah, this is kind of like the final play where Cochran is very afraid of getting this woman on the jury. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to a couple of episodes, he specifically said, this is who I need to be on the jury. Mm -hmm. A white woman was not in the cards, and this is totally going to mess Cochran's team up. Yeah. This... This was definitely a play from both sides. We don't really, we don't see them acting on this, but we know that what's going on behind closed doors is that each of them is sending in anonymous tips to the court to get the jurors that they don't want on this case dismissed. And that's just, that just really says something about our judicial system, if that's how easy it is to stack a jury. It was, it definitely seemed very handpicked to begin with. Mm-hmm. And as this episode rolls out, we kind of see Marsha and Cochran at their strongest. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I feel like all the pieces, all the other players have kind of fallen away. Like we're, we're seeing less of Darden, we're seeing less of Shapiro. And this battle is ultimately like not even about OJ, it's about Cochran versus Marsha. Like who can tell their story the best? Who, who can tell their story the best and who can get the public on their side? Um, the jurors, though. They're starting to get a sense of this, and they are not pleased. They have what is called the Jurors' Revolts, where they all show up to court. I think all but three show up to court dressed in all black, and it throws everybody off. Because they don't know who's on what side, because all the jurors are now teaming up to protest how unfairly they're being treated in this case. I mean, they're in, like, like this episode is called, it's a jury in jail. You have a grand jury of very diverse people who aren't seeing eye-to-eye on anything in their day-to-day. How are they going to see eye-to-eye on a case like this that, as we have finally seen in Episode 9, has become so convoluted? This trial is an absolute mess, and everybody is scared of a mistrial. Like, even I was scared for a little bit. Like, (laughs) you know how much of a mess it would be if we would have to do this all over again? It would be Um, freaking awful. And then I think the final blow-up for this episode was when (laughs) OJ asked to testify oh i thought you were gonna say when tracy literally blows up at breakfast <laughs> oh, yes. when tracy like kicks her shoes off and just like 
runs for the door. Runs for it. I felt for her in that moment. She was having a mental breakdown, and there was nothing they could have done to stop this. But coming back to OJ, um, I want to bring up something that we kind of glossed over and didn't really touch upon before closing out episode 8. Um, we have a scene very early on in the episode of him playing cards with what they call um, his material witnesses. It's him, um, Rob Kardashian, and two of their unnamed friends, at least I think they're unnamed, and they're all just sitting around playing cards, talking about the case. Um, OJ even mentions it, this scene comes directly after the blockbuster scene. And OJ's talking about how much he loves Kramer and how we should get his own spinoff because Seinfeld is such a great show. Further driving home the point that OJ is just completely disconnected from the African-American community. And they start talking, these people start talking as they're playing cards about DNA evidence and how nobody understands what DNA evidence DNA evidence is or how it can hold up in a court of law because this is one of the first instances that we really see this getting used on such a grand scale. Um, I think and we that's kind of a running theme of a lot of true crime stories that we've been hearing about recently where DNA, I mean, like we all went to high school. We, we understand it's built of four acids, I guess, but like mm -hmm. no one can truly grasp what DNA is and what it means in cases like this. Yeah, they don't really have a good way to break down, at least not initially, how this could affect the case at the fact that they found DNA in various parts that could only match one in 150 million people, I think they said. Was something along those lines? It was um, one in 170 million, I want to say. That's it. Okay, I think it was somewhere around there. It was like a dramatic number, but enough for me to be like, well, I mean, there are six billion people in the world. But still, I mean, out of all the people in L.A., that's not its not good odds. It's not looking in O.J.'s favor. No. Um, and we get the DNA analyst um, Fung up on the stand um, being interrogated by, who is it, Rob? Rob? No, 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 not, not Rob. Rob. Barry. 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 Barry Shack. Barry, Barry, Barry. Shack. Yep. Who I secretly love. <laughs> Even though he's, like, making this man seem like to be a fool on the stand? Well, because I, I, we had met Barry Sheck very early on when the Dream Team was being assembled. And mm -hmm. Barry Sheck was the one to introduce, hey, there's this thing called DNA. No one really <laughs> understands it. We can twist this however we want. And he but kind of goes off and comes back. And guess what? No one still understands DNA. Well, nobody understands it, but it gives people enough pause to really uh, take a step back and be like, do we trust OJ? Do we believe that he didn't do it? So much so that after Fung goes on the stand and tells um, the jury, or the jury's there for this, right? They're not pulled away before this testimony. They're, they're here for it. They're here for it. They are here for it. Um, we see he, he gives the DNA breakdown and the numbers, and in the next scene... None of the guys who claim to be OJ's material witnesses are there to meet him for another game of cards in the jailhouse. It's just him and Rob Kardashian. And who... OJ starts to freak out. Yeah, so as we wrap up this episode, I I love David Schwimmer. I love Selma Blair. I want all the awards for them come award season because mm -hmm. I have never been so touched by a scene in this series as I was the uh, Kardashian scene. Which is something end. weird to say because you're really feeling for the Kardashians here. I was touched by Kris Jenner. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. 
it was a really emotional scene because I think, yeah, you're right. We only see Rob sticking around and you and I have talked about Rob's doubt over the course of the past two episodes where he's kind of at odds with himself, whether or not he can really stick by OJ's side. And he, here he is finally like coming to his wife who has very much been like, I lost my friend, Nicole, her husband did a really bad thing. And he says he was my friend for 20 years and after this, he will no longer be a part of our lives. Yeah, and it's this scene comes directly after uh, we get OJ in this mock interrogation. Oh. And they're watching it and realizing that he is not going to be good on the stand if they let him testify. Because even in even when the mock interrogator is bringing up the instances of domestic violence, he's giving such half-assed responses as to say oh I don't remember this maybe she fell down I don't really know even though the police were called in instances of domestic violence uh the, the mock juror even specifically brings up one that occurred on New Year's Day and OJ's just like I don't know maybe something else happened maybe I didn't abuse her and he just, just is not able to give a convincing enough argument and it's causing everyone to panic the amount of ego that this man has like it's just like impossible for me to like really fully grasp people being drawn to him you know like as a celebrity as a friend as a man like I cannot even believe I just need to know more about this rehearsal mm-hmm. and you know me I'm obsessed with the book if I did it like I just know what he believes to be his version of the events and this man is beyond delusional he is delusional, he is lost in his own little world, and has no idea what is even going on. And frankly, neither do we, because at the end of this episode, we get an anonymous tip. Ooh. We get the anonymous tip um, that Mark Furman has gone on record, and there are tapes that exist of him saying the N-word and talking about various instances of police r- corruption that had to do specifically with race. Very bombastic. I was on the edge of my seat, and here we are, episode 9, Mana from Heaven. Yes, here we are, the penultimate episode of the series, episode 9, and we start off with one of the best and cheesiest 90s graphics from a current affair that I have seen. I think, I'm pretty sure my blockbuster reference is my favorite 90s reference of the series, but this 90s, like, shitty-ass current affairs graphic... It's a close second because it just reminded me of every single news program, every single educational video we ever watched in school. It's just, it's so public access, but it's just so, like, that was the standard back then. I, yeah, just to kind of touch on, like, the aesthetic Mm -hmm. that has been laid out for us, like, it, this is finally an aesthetic that doesn't seem alien to me because... I remember things looking like that. Yeah. I remember blockbuster tapes looking like that. I remember these things. I think one of the jurors in episode eight where it's a really heinous Cosby sweater. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like that's that's just what people wore. That was the style back then. Uh, but we do. We get the um, very cheesy 80s graphics and we're kind of put back into the ensemble cast. Like what's happening? The, the case is just completely out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting we're getting the idea that they don't really know what they're doing or what their argument is at this point. They just know that they either have to convince the public that um, the LAPD is corrupt or that OJ killed his wife. They don't they don't really have 
one of the things about these kinds of cases is that they really need to get a sense of it's either who did it or who didn't do it and if they didn't do it then who could have done it there's no alternative theories here still rob broke down about it earlier in the season and we're still the dream team's whole defense is just proving that the lapd is corrupt not that oj isn't a murderer but that they would have the means to have planted all of this and make oj look like a guilty man you know i love the dream team you know i have stood by them that i've found that their argument was very compelling but this was the episode where it all fell apart for me. Really? Because I started, maybe like <laughs> midway through the episode, I started to like understand the dream team. Maybe not sympathize for them, but I started to understand where they were coming from. Um, and we had a really good line about um, the whole case as a, as a the, the case as a whole, essentially, towards the end of the episode, which is um, a little bit out there. But it's, we were hired to defend a man, not to take down the LAPD. Yes. Yes. That's kind of like the, the turning point for me where like I've been very gung-ho about like, you know what? That's a totally smart argument to like rat out the LAPD. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not O.J. Simpson committed a murder. Yeah. Committed two murders. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. And that I want to say is like that is the downfall of the case, but it's not going to be. I was really feeling the dream team up until this point in this episode. They were going about it in a very smart and strategic way. But when they called that out, it really made me think that, yeah, they, they're not tasked here with taking down the LAPD. If they wanted to, they could file um, a civil suit, I guess, against the LAPD in a separate case. But this right here, this is getting out of hand. Uh, but Furman, Furman's whole role in this case is very bombastic and i want to kind of get into that how interesting was it that Furman admitted all of this to a screenwriter yeah laura mckinney apparently um was doing some research into the lapd for a screenplay that she was writing uh while she was living in los angeles she has since moved to north carolina because she couldn't make enough money i guess or couldn't sell a script what was story of my life what what was the line that you loved that made you uh put your whole education into perspective it uh it was the dream team reflecting on her how can you teach screenwriting if you can't sell one <laughs> and i was like uh, i yeah <laughs> but uh a private investigator contacts laura to try to track down these tapes and she wants nothing to do with this case she wants nothing to do with mark Furman anymore she knows what a smoking gun she has, and she does not want to be associated with any more riots that may occur in the Los Angeles area because of these tapes being made public. So it's mm, this whole sequence of them trying to get the tapes, trying to uncover the tapes, trying to essentially call out Mark Freeman for lying on the stand way back when in episode four or five when he said he had never used the N-word before. They're just trying to take Mark Furman out of the equation entirely. I actually love the exchange that happened about this in the dream team, where this is the titular manna from heaven. Uh, Cochran is like literally praising Jesus. He's saying, God brought us these tapes. This is our ticket out. And Shapiro kind of gets like all huffy and Regina George like and says, <laughs> I discovered Furman. I invented him. And Effley Bailey says like he is contradicting the trap that I laid 
and Darden is is also kind of ruminating. Everybody kind of has their own feelings about the the Furman tapes, and and Darden says it's evil. It's here for everyone to hear. It's it's boiling. This is about to bubble over. Yeah, and Shapiro, um, he gets in an argument with F. Lee Bailey because he wants to be the one to go down with Cochran to the south, to North Carolina specifically, to petition the judge to get access to these tapes. And Bailey says that he has better experience down in the south. He knows how things work down there because he's previously, um, he said he won over 200 cases, I think, in North Carolina alone, which fact check that. I think everyone's a little bit skeptical about that. But he does have that sort of southern mentality about him. And he, he knows. He definitely has that southern prudeness, mm-hmm. almost, where I, I just wrote down, like, Bailey's southern speech. Like, the way that he spoke in that courtroom is a, is a way that I have seen and heard so many southern men growing up speak mm-hmm. where you pepper in the lord and some religion and some goodness and some politeness and you get what you want and that's exactly what he does because at first cochran goes up to the judge and tries to get the tapes um what is it not subpoenaed just tries to get access to the tapes tries to get them um forked over to bring you brought back to la and the judge is not having it. He's like, no, like the, these tapes have absolutely nothing to do with your case. We don't understand why we would have to give something like this to you. And outside of the courtroom, uh, Bailey confides in Cochran and says, listen, like we are in the South right now. This is how things have to be done. Look at you and look at the court down here. They don't want to listen. You are standing. Look at this statue at of the, a Civil War hero. A Confederate hero right behind you. And he does have a point. I mean... It sucks to say, but that's the reality of the world that we live in. Even now, there's just there are certain places with that cer- certain type of mentality about them, and you have to go about things a specific way if you want to get things done. Like you were saying, peppering uh, allusions to the Lord and how things are supposed to be done, at least according I, to them. I grew up in Georgia. I have lived on streets named after Confederate war heroes. I have Lord. been to a place that has Confederate statues like i this is just how things are there so it wasn't surprising to me that that would happen that they would say no to a black man johnny Mm -hmm. cochran my fave my mvp (laughs) of this entire trial Mm -hmm. um and that they would like listen to bailey's sweet talk but you know what they do get the tapes they do get the tapes and we have this really tense scene afterwards where both the dream team and marsh's team are listening to copies of the tapes um, to try to decide if there's anything in here that can be held up in court. And the Dream Team is celebrating, and Marsha does not know what to do. But I, at the same time, I felt like everybody was feeling a sense of shame. Like, they were just so appalled by what they were listening to and what they were reading when they were reading the transcripts. And it was wonderful to me that everybody was on the same page. Like, Well, yeah, because Furman's a dang racist. different things. Oh, my gosh. He's like... He was dropping the N-word like it was his mixtape. It was just one after the other. It was absurd. And then I think an especially telling moment was like, not only was he going after African-Americans, but we saw this foreshadowing a mm-hmm. while ago. Uh-huh. Ito's wife. Called it. I, this man was pulling a Donald Trump. Like he was talking about how like 
overweight she was and like she was a cow and mm-hmm. she was like it's just just gross gross talk i mean like you and i have said that like steven pascal could totally get it but mark Furman, on the other hand disgusting racist i am so glad we didn't have to see him say any of these things because i would have like had a fully new disrespect for this actor even knowing that this is a role that he's playing it was just so it was just so toxic it was such venomous speech that he was spouting but yeah we find out that he had it in for judge ito's wife peggy york but i i mentioned this earlier very early on that Peggy had some hesitation when she saw the name, and Mm -hmm. this was definitely a point that we needed to take note of. What the hell, Peggy? She should have said... I mean, she should have said something. Did she just want her husband to, like, excel and have this star case? No. Because it sounds like she just screwed everyone over. I don't think that was her reasoning, and that's what they try to blame it on later in the episode. But think about it this way. And they even bring this up, too. She is a woman in a mostly male-dominated workforce. Do you want to have this sort of thing being laid out in the open? She knows that she had had bad experiences with Mark Furman in the past. She knows that he probably hates her because of how she had called him out and written him up. But she doesn't want to let that affect the overall case just because he, he hated the fact that she was a woman who was superior to him. Peggy, lean in. I don't want her to. I love her, even though we only got one scene with her. She's just... I, I knew that this was an important scene uh, when we first saw it, that there was something else going on here, and that we were going to get a real sense of why she hesitated. It's because Furman, while not only just being a racist, is also a misogynist, and just specifically hates Peggy. So yeah, after all this comes out about his wife, Judge Ito has no idea what to do next. He doesn't know. He has this whole great monologue about how the court, aka him, um, wants to be unbiased in all of this, despite the fact that it's his wife being talked about on these tapes. But he also doesn't know if he can maintain any sort of um, non-prejudice against Furman after hearing these tapes, so he decides that he's going to throw it over to another judge to see if they should have a mistrial because of this instance, or if they should proceed with the case as is. On top of that, Ito in a kind of last minute decision, decides not to enter these tapes into evidence, save for two sentences in which Mark Furman will drop the N-word twice. Yes, And yes. that should be enough for everybody to get an idea of what is going on. Well, yeah, because after Judge John Reed decides that it's up to Ito's discretion um, as to which parts of these tapes should be held, um, he doesn't want to hear the stuff about his wife. And I don't blame him. That would just be awful. The entire thing is just awful. Like, geez, like, okay, again, I'll bring it up again. F. Lee Bailey's argument for why they won the case the way that they did was that Furman was the last minute bombshell. Mm -hmm. Like, Furman totally did them in. He was completely inappropriate and out of line. Yeah, and Marsha knew that because she was pleading for Judge Ito not to let the jury hear these tapes. She did not want this to affect the case in any way, shape, or form because... Again, it's not a case against the LAPD. It's a case as to whether or not OJ murdered Nicole and Ron Goldman. But it's but it's not anymore because and I think that is absolutely why this is the trial of the century is because it started as just a celebrity getting caught red-handed and it turned into a social issue. 
and and all of these issues become bigger than the people. You gotta remember the people who were affected here directly, Nicole and Ron. We have a really upsetting scene with Fred Goldman, Ron's father, where he's mm-hmm. breaking down about how this isn't a case about his son's murder anymore. And as as a parent, I don't blame him. As if it wasn't already too focused on Nicole and like no one even ever brought Ron up. Mm-hmm. I mean, for these people, it's devastating. And to bring up If I Did It Again, um, I'm glad that the Golden family was able to at least get some minute form of justice in the form of, of profiting off of OJ's tell-all. Mm-hmm. Because the Goldwins get absolutely nothing in this case. Yeah. No one cares. It's awful and it's tragic. And I just... I just hated where this case went. I hate it. I hate it so much. I wish we could have just... I wish the tapes had never even existed. I want to know who called that anonymous tip and why they did it. Because, really, the only people who knew about these tapes, presumably, were the screenwriter and Furman himself. Uh, We later on in the scene, um, after we learned that we're only going to get about two sentences worth Mm -hmm. of these tapes um shapiro is watching the speech that cochran is giving in conjunction with the naacp and there's that chant of release the tapes but in my mind release the tapes and then what you just you just produce evidence that the lapd is racist but again like you're not tying it back to the murder well they also i mean they could have tied it back to the murder in the fact that Furman admitted to previously falsifying evidence in a racially charged case that and I think we have a, a really great moment from Marsha where she stands up to the judge and says, I don't want to defend Mark Furman, mm-hmm. although he is on my side. And it's such, it's just, this This is this is the end. This is the end. This is how the world ends. This is the downfall of Marsha Clark and Chris Darted. And it's hard to watch. We do get a scene of them reconciling later on um, in a really, I thought it was adorable moment. Of Marsha telling Darden, you know, Mark Furman's initials are MF. How appropriate <laughs> is that? <laughs> uh, and they admit that they should have just listened to each other when it came to both Mark Furman and the glove. That the gloves did technically fit, but it was the latex. And I just, there's so much working against Marsha and Darden that they shared this moment where I wasn't sure if they were acknowledging to each other that they should just give up Mm -hmm. or if they just knew that this was it i know it's just i wanted there's no way to recover from this i just wanted them to kiss and just have each other because they were screwed after this oh yeah (laughs) but like we said luckily judge ito decides that out of the 13 hours of tapes we're only going to get two lines two sentences out of this um And this is when Shapiro says that we've been hired to defend OJ, not to bring down the LAPD. And they think that this should be enough to get OJ off, at least, because Furman did lie on the stand. He lied, he committed perjury, and then here we are crucifying him. I feel like I may have felt a similar amount of anger when I realized that, just like in this case, they were only going to get two sentences of the tape. I was only going to get two minutes of Mark Furman on the stand, pleading the fifth. I mean, if you were in his shoes and you knew that you lied on the stand, wouldn't you want to just plead the fifth constantly to prevent yourself from further lying, from further Listen, implicating yourself? I am Not already to upset him. of the lack of Cato Kalin. <laughs> 
I was mentioning this last week when we were recording that I wanted to see Kato Kalen again. We're done with him. We're not going to see that like pop culture aspect of the show. But for Mark Furman, who is such a an icon of this case to just show up last minute and not truly be crucified to just get away with pleading the fifth. I hate that. And it makes me think of like our whole social system and the way it's built and how, you know, like sometimes you can get away with murder and this is what's happening. You can get away with being super racist. I mean, with the advancements in social media these days, it's a lot harder to, but there are still instances of people getting away with it. So Mark Furman being on the stand and just pleading the fifth to every single question being thrown his way from OJ's team, it really digs him a deeper grave. And what digs him the deepest grave of all is when Cochran asked him, did you falsify any evidence in this case? And he just pleads the fifth once again. I don't remember who said it, but it was it was very poignant for me. It's hard to be hated by both sides. Mm-hmm. Like, I just... Even as much of a terrible person as he is, I cannot imagine being in that situation. Furman's just done. And so is this case. We even see OJ stripping down after this scene back in the back in the jail. And he is happy. He is ecstatic. He knows he's getting out. He thinks Johnny's got it in the bag for him. He... I mean, he's thrilled that he is not going to have to spend much longer in jail and that he's going to get away with murder. But I'm glad that we got at least one happy ending out of all of this, and that was Marsha getting custody of her children. She, the secretary or whoever that was, delivers the news to her and says, you got everything. Did she, though? Did she? I mean, I think that's kind of like a bait and switch that Brian Murphy wanted to pull on our heartstrings for, Mm -hmm. was... Because we know that she's not going to get everything in the case of her career. At mm-hmm. least she has her children. That's very true. So, good for you, Marsha. At least you got something you wanted. time for the portion of the show where we share our highlights and lowlights of the show. It's time for gloves up and gloves down. Gloves up means we love this, keep doing this, bring us more of it. And gloves down means we don't like this. Neil, what was your gloves up moment of either episode, I guess? Or both? I guess my gloves up moment for episode eight, A Jury in Jail. Uh, I gotta say, all the use of music overall. The use of music, Ooh, yes. slow motion walk sequences. It was like an on-point episode stylistically. Um, I said it earlier that I want more slow motion walk sequences. And we got one of Marsha walking into her office before she like starts ripping shit up and tearing shit down when she realizes that she's going to have to fight to get the jury that she wants. And like we said earlier, we got the entire jury sequence to Another One Bites the Dust. That was an awesome <laughs> moment. What about you? Um, For episode eight. Again, it's the Kardashians, mm-hmm. and uh, just, like, this entire thing has given me, like, a, a new backstory to at least, like, the, the first generation of them. You know, like, we, we don't know too much about Rob Kardashian. We know a lot about Kris Jenner, but, I mean, I have mad respect for that woman. Mm-hmm. I totally do. Just, like, her entire family aside, like, that woman is a very strong woman. She's She's for- got it on lock. She does. She she has lived a life. She has lived a life and she has profited from it. So you that go, girl. That is a book I will read. <laughs> I really hope she has, like, something 
something hidden away somewhere just spewing all this truth tea about the O.J. Simpson case, like, that she'll release, like, probably on her deathbed. For episode nine, I will say that my my gloves up moment was was Shapiro, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have said time and again, I love this cast, I love this ensemble, and I love John Travolta. Um, and I think, you know, when we do get moments of Shapiro saying, hey, I was here first, like, I created all of you guys, like, it's true, you know? Like, where would we be? Where would the dream team be without Shapiro? I gotta say, though, my gloves up moment for episode nine would be everybody hates Furman. I'm just so glad that nobody is willing to defend this man and that they can't do anything about the fact that he is just a horrible, misogynistic, racist of a man. And they realize that he's just a shitty person. What is he up to now? I don't think much. I have um, refrained from reading a bunch about like what's going on with with those people now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what's going on with Furman, but I can assure you his career was probably ruined. Probably. What about your gloves down for the episodes? Uh, gloves down. I, I would say episode eight was insightful, but I wasn't entertained. Mm-hmm. Um, and for episode nine, I would say, again, lack of Furman. You know, I think we were building up this episode to be very, like, bombastic we would like finally see Furman and and everything would kind of finally come to a close mm-hmm. and he came in and he kind of just like slid through the whole thing and now 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 what you know like now we wrap up this case and we know how it ends and I'm I'm it's a little bittersweet like I wish it wasn't ending but at the same time like what more can we do with this story i mean maybe we'll get something next week i think my gloves down moment though for episode eight um was just the lack of the ensemble i miss them i miss them um i wish we had had more time with the jurors in previous episodes i know it was kind of like um like a very specific episode that we were gonna have like a one-off of the jury but I would have liked more inklings throughout the series, like more little sprinklings of jurors here and there before we were getting the whole emotional, like, oh, you're supposed to like feel for them. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't, I barely did. I kind of did. Sometimes. I just met them. I don't know their names. I don't care about them. And I think my gloves down moment for episode nine. Oh, what would this be? What would this be? I think it's just F. Lee Bailey just being an awful man. Just Just the worst. being the worst. Consistently the worst. That's it for this episode where we've recapped both episode 8 and episode 9 of American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. This is almost it for us. Next week is the final episode of this season of American Crime Story. It's the final episode for the two of us on on O.J. Simpson, but fret not. There is going to be plenty of O.J. material for everyone to discover over the summer. Neil, did you hear about this docuseries that's coming out? Yeah, that, um, who is it? Martin Sheen? Where do you get off Martin Sheen thinking that you can prove that O.J. Simpson is innocent? I was literally watching Frankie and Grace last night when you tagged me in that link, and I was like, oh my god. I have to see this. Maybe we'll come back for that. 
Maybe we will come back. There's that going on. And then, as I'd mentioned earlier, ESPN's 30 for 30 is being expanded mm-hmm. into, uh, I want to say, like a seven-hour documentary. Oof. And it's supposed to cover all of OJ's life, which, it. I mean, y- you learn who OJ is and you learn who he's become. And that's why the story is so resonating, because not only was it a figment of 90s culture, but it's also very telling of of our American society. Yeah, so we've got more OJ coming at you even after the finale next week. Even after the finale. So we'll see you again next week. We'll recap the end. We'll relish and celebrate. I'm Lorena Mora. And I'm Neil McNeil. And that's what the dogs are. (laughs) 